Well, good morning. This is, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a little surreal, you know. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Lucas. I know I look a lot like that guy, Jace. Um, we're both ruggedly handsome. I get it. Easy to, easy to confuse us. Um, but uh, that confusion uh, is, is going to end shortly. We're going to, uh, my wife and I, Carrie, we're going to take the kids. Some debate over taking the kids. We decided to take the kids. And... Uh, we're moving uh, back to the Northeast where we've lived before. Um, but obviously, it's a, it's a bittersweet move for us. You know, we are sincerely grateful to God for the opportunity and the open door and, and just what seems to be his clear leading for us. Um, but we're also very sad to leave. And um, well, let me just say that I absolutely believe that God's plan for me and for my family is always better than my own. And it's not always easy to say that. It's not always easy to say that. In fact, some of you understand that as well. And some of you have experienced uh, struggle in your own lives, excruciating pain. Maybe it's a relationship or employment or God knows. And as you've struggled through, whatever you've been through, you, you blame God. And I get it. And maybe you don't want to say that out loud. Maybe you, you wouldn't even want to admit that to yourself. But there's a part of you that you blame God for the pain that you feel, for the struggle you've had, the heartache you've experienced. And, sorry. And it's a hard thing. It's a hard thing. Because on the one hand, God is sovereign. We, we know that he's in control. We, we know that everything that happens within God's creation, all of the universe, nothing happens outside of his control. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground. Everything that happens, God either allows or he does. And so ultimately, God is responsible. But that raises a hard question, doesn't it? It's the question that, that as believers and theologians and philosophers for literally thousands of years have wrestled with, how can God, who is all-powerful, allow evil in the world if he's good? See, if God is good, if he's truly good, then how can he let bad things happen to good people? But it's not, it's not just a theoretical question for a lot of us. The question we, we wrestle with in the middle of the night when we wake up in the morning, God, how can you have allowed this in my life? God, how can you have done this to me? When, when I look at scripture, I can't think of anyone's life that takes a more drastic and dramatic turn than that of Job. And you're probably familiar with his story, but it, within a few chapters, right, Job goes from having everything Everything that he could possibly have dreamed of within a few verses, in real time, maybe a matter of days, Job goes from having everything that a man in his age could have desired, land, wealth, family, livestock. It's not really what I'm going for, but, you know, for him, big win. No Netflix, no Amazon Prime, but understand, he had it all. And virtually overnight, it's taken away. 
And so if you have a Bible, I want to look with us just briefly at this book of Job. And we're going to try to go through the entire book. I know that sounds daunting, but we're, we can't do an in-depth study. We're going to kind of hop, skip, and jump our way through it. And we want to wrestle with this question just for a moment of, of can God truly be good if he allows bad things in our lives? We want to start right at the beginning. Set the stage. So Job 1 Verse 1. And there was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job is a good man. He's a good man. And there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. That's an impressive title, isn't it? I mean, how many of us have ever been called the greatest of anyone anywhere? I'm guessing, like, not many, okay? So life is good for Job. He's got everything he can dream of. His life is the very definition of the good life. Job's life is good, and Job is good. But his life is about to change. In verse 6, it says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So pause here. This is ancient Near Eastern imagery of, of a throne room where the king would be in his throne room and then his different counselors, they would make their way in and they would present themselves and give reports on what's going on within the king's realm. And so when it talks about the sons of God right here, this isn't little Jesuses running around. This is angelic beings who report to God. This is God's divine counsel and they come to, to give a report to God over what is going on within his universe. But someone else sneaks in. So the end of the verse, it says, and Satan, literally the challenger, the accuser, he also came among them. Verse 7, and the Lord said to his accuser, Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And at this point, if Job knew what was happening, you have to think he'd be going, God, don't do me any favors. You know, don't, don't, don't point me out to Satan. That's, that's not helpful. Okay, verse 9. And then Satan answered the Lord and says, Does God, Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he'll curse you. To your face. And so Satan's accusation against Job is that, that, sure, Job's good. It's easy to be good when life is going well. Sure, Job is good, but if his life wasn't so rosy, God, he'd curse you. He'd turn against you. He only fears you, God. He only loves you, God, because you're so good to him. He doesn't really love you. He loves how good you are to him. And so incredibly, God gives Satan permission to do whatever he wants to Job. And to strip Job of everything in his life is almost a, a test, almost like a wager to see, does, does Job truly fear God? Is Job truly good because of God, or is it just because God has been so gracious to him? He's protected him. He's blessed him in every way. Which is it? 
And so if you keep reading, Satan utterly destroys Job's life. Marauders attack, they kill his servants, they kill, steal his livestock, and then fire from heaven burns up his sheep and even more servants. By the way, if you wonder why Job later blames God, how else would you interpret fire falling from heaven? And then there's more marauders and they kill more servants and carry off the rest of his livestock. And then a windstorm blows over the house where his kids are all having a dinner party and all of them are killed. And if that's not enough, just a short time later, Satan gets further permission from God to afflict Job with a terrible disease and he's suddenly covered with painful sores all over his body. It's not a good run for Job. Maybe you've had a hard run in your life. It's going to be hard to compete with Job. And so now his kids are dead. His riches are gone. He's got a terrible and excruciating illness. And in the midst of this, his wife comes with some really bad advice. Because she comes up to Job and she says, Honey, curse God and die. Curse God and die. God clearly hates you. God has turned his back on you. God has cursed you. So pay it back to him. Curse God, and then God will strike you dead and put you out of your misery. Curse God and die. And yet in the very next verse, it says that Job refuses to curse God. And it says that in all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. In other words, he refused to curse Job, uh, God. He remained innocent and blameless. And he passed the test. See, that's the end of the test. The accusation was... If, if, God, if you allow me to strip everything good out of Job's life, then he's going to curse you. Well, here it is. His wife comes and says, curse God. And he says, no. And in all of this, Job did not sin. When I was little, um, there was this movie, uh, silly movie called The Court Jester uh, with Danny Kaye. It's really fun, a little kid's movie. And, uh, but in it, it had this song. And it went like this. Life couldn't possibly not even probably, life couldn't possibly better be. Very catchy. This is the exact opposite. For Job, life couldn't possibly, not even probably, life couldn't possibly be worse. He's literally lost everything. His kids are gone, dead. He's broke. And so now he is sitting on a heap of ashes. And he shaves his head and he tears his robe. And he sits there because that's what you do when you're crushed by grief. That's what you do when the sorrow is more than you can bear. Maybe you've had a hard run in your life. It's going to be hard to compete with Job. You ever had a time in your life where you've questioned God? You've thought, God, what on earth are you doing right now? And maybe you've, you've, you've prayed out to God, cried out to God, God, what did I do to deserve this? This seems grossly unfair, God. Why, why have you done this to me? Or, or maybe you feel like God has punished you. A season where you go, God, are you punishing me? You know what, if you would just tell me what I did wrong, I would stop doing it, and then you could stop punishing me. Have you ever thought that? There have been seasons in my own life where things are just not going according to plan, and, and I've prayed almost tongue-in-cheek, okay, God, whatever lesson it is that you want me to learn, I hope I learn it really fast, because I need this to stop. See, there is something 
hardwired in us that believes that God operates on a merit system. We, we think that the world, God has created the world in such a way that, that we get what we pay for. That we reap what we sow. And we believe that this is the, the moral order of the universe as God has established it. We, we think that, that if I'm good, then God will bless me. In fact, God has to bless me. And if I do the wrong thing, then God punishes me. And, and if this is the way that we understand the moral order of the universe, then when bad things happen in our lives, the only possible interpretation is that God has turned against us. And he's punishing us. That's exactly what Job's friends say. Right? Job's friends show up, three or four of them, they show up from out of town. They hear what's been going on with Job. And they, when they get there, it looks great to start with because they're sitting there quietly just as though they're there just to comfort him. It's so beautiful. Unfortunately, then they start to talk. And they accuse Job. And they say, Job, you have sinned. That's why all this is happening to you. The reason all this pain is happening, you've sinned, so repent and God will make it all go away. So Job 11 Skip down to Job 11. This is one of his friends. In verse 14, listen to what he says. Job, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. Verse 16, you will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water's gone by. It's, it's like it will be just a bad dream that you'll wake up from. Life will be brighter than noonday and darkness will become like morning. It's like it's never even happened if you'll just repent, Job. Just own up to what you've done, but make no mistake, Job. You're to blame. You brought this all on yourself. It's your fault, so repent and God will stop punishing you. And now there's a part of us that wants to believe this is true. I mean, it sounds good, at one level. There's a part of us that, that, that wishes that this was actually how the world operated all the time because if, if it were just that simple, then we could simply figure out what we're doing wrong. Right? What is that sin? What is that, that area that we are not living up to God's standard and then we repent of it, we stop doing it and like that, all the pain goes away. Now don't misunderstand me. There are times that God does discipline us in the same way that I, I may discipline one of my kids. I may correct them. When they're doing the wrong thing, I want to get them back on track. And so I'll correct them. But what makes Job's story so confounding, what makes Job's story even more tragic because it seems so unfair, is that what we know is that Job is innocent. He didn't do anything to deserve this. We know what Job's friends don't know. Job is blameless. There's nothing to repent of. Job didn't bring this on himself. He doesn't deserve it. He didn't cause any of this to happen to him. See, we know that. And what makes Job's story then so true to life, why it resonates with so many of us and why people for thousands and thousands of years have been drawn to this story is because we know better. We know from, from life, experience has taught us that life isn't fair. The world doesn't operate on a merit system. Contrary to whatever propaganda we might want to, to tout, life does not work on a meritocracy. That's not how the world operates. 
Life doesn't work in these neat and easy rules. In fact, what life teaches us is that there's a futility to life where you can try to do the right thing and you can try to make the right decision. You can try to be wise and you can try to do all the right things and you still will never escape the pain of living in a broken world. I know what you're thinking right now. God, I'm glad this guy didn't preach every week. I mean, how would, you, how would you survive the positive vibes that just emanate from this pulpit, right? But see, that's why Job's story is our story. Do you see it? This is why Job's story is our story, and this is why Job's complaint to God is our complaint to God. God, this isn't fair. Why are you allowing this? Explain yourself to me. And so Job takes these accusations from his friends and he actually redirects them. Look at this, Job 13. Job 13, starting in verse 13. Job's gonna redirect his friends' accusations towards God. So here he's speaking to his friends. Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? And so what Job is contemplating here, understand, in the context, he's envisioning going into a courtroom to present his case before God against God. He's going to come into the courtroom. He's going to present his evidence to God, but against God, that God is unfair. He didn't deserve any of this. And this is why he says... I'm taking my life in my hands because you don't just, you know, casually walk in to the courtroom and accuse God. It's a little, little dangerous there. But listen to the next verse. Verse 15, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. See, even in the midst of everything that Job has endured, everything that's gone on, all that he's lost, and even as he prepares to accuse God, this is the heart of Job there's still this part of him that holds out hope that somehow, some way, God might still make it right. That God might still be good. Despite all evidence that seems to point to the contrary. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Verse 16. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance, for no godless man would dare come before him. See, Job is absolutely convinced of his innocence. He says, no godless man would dare to do what I'm about to do. I am innocent. Skip down to verse 19. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. In other words, I'm innocent. I'm, I'm taking my life in my hands. I'm innocent. There are no charges against me that are going to stick. Down to verse 23. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Job is, is challenging God. God, show me what I did wrong. You can't. Show me my sins, God. Show me my offenses. You can't. And so notice that what started as a test for Job to see if he truly loved God now is a test of God to see if he truly loves Job. Job was accused, but now he's accusing God. You've done me wrong. You've treated me unfairly. 
If you're so good, then tell me why this has happened. Explain yourself to me. And that's how it goes for the next 25 chapters. We're going to skip. Job's friends accuse him. Job accuses God. Until finally, God's had enough. And God shows up and he says, Okay, Job, you want to dance? Okay, Job, you want to accuse me? You want an answer, Job? I'll give you an answer. It's just not the one he's ready for. So chapter 38, skip all the way down for me. Chapter 38. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. That's intimidating. And said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I'd be rethinking my position at this point. He says, okay, Job, you, you want to go? You want to play? Let's talk. Get ready. Get ready, Job. I will ask you a question and you make it known to me. Where were you, Job, when I lay the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding who determined its measurements. Surely you know. That's called sarcasm. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? In other words, Job, you're not qualified to judge me. Who do you think you are? Where were you, Job, when I created the universe out of nothing? Where were you when I decided how big it would be? Where were you when I shaped the very fabric of reality, Job? You don't get to question me. You're not qualified. Verse 8, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors saying, this is how far you shall come and no farther and here your sh your shall your proud waves be staged. This is how big the ocean is going to be when it bursts out. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, the rhythms of life, of creation? Did you do that? That it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? Where were you, Job? See, Job, here's the thing. You might not like the way that I run the universe, but last time I checked, you don't have a universe. Remember when you were a kid and... Um, you demanded an explanation from your mom or dad. How'd that go? Remember, you wanted to go spend the night or go to that party or play that video game or watch that movie and they said no and you said, why not? So unfair. Why won't you let me do that? And they gave you that explanation that every kid loathes. You know it. Because I said so. I hated that. And then, of course, you know, some of us, we grow up and we have our own kids. And what do we say? Because I said so. And see, what, what we're saying in that, it effectively is this. I am your highest authority. I, I don't have to appeal to any higher authority than myself to validate my judgment in this decision. I don't have to ask your friends. I don't have to ask their parents. I don't have to, you know, pull Facebook. I don't have to appeal to reason or logic or common sense. 
because I'm the highest authority in your life. And so oh, no explanation is owed and none is required. And while we might be our child's highest authority in their lives at that moment, only God can truly say that he is the highest authority in the universe. Only God is the one who can say to the entire universe, this is how it is because I said so. And that's what God is reminding Job. That his, in his design for creation, everything that he lists here, and it goes on and on, in his design for creation, he determined the barriers for the sea. And he, he, he determined the ratio of light to darkness in the universe. And he designed the beauty of the dawn and set the rhythms of the seasons and days and months and years. He determined that leaves would be green instead of scarlet, that snow would be cold instead of hot, that water would freeze at 32 degrees instead of 31. He determined all of that and he didn't consult anyone else. He, he didn't surf Google. He didn't crowdsource. He didn't pull Facebook. He, he, didn't, he didn't consult the experts in universe creation. He didn't look at the latest research. He didn't read a book on how to create the world in six days and rest on the seventh. He consulted no one. He literally spoke it into existence because he said so. And in the same way, that God didn't consult us as he created the universe and how he ordered it and how he operates in it. When we lie in bed at night and we demand that God gives us an explanation, he does not owe us one any more than our parents when they said we couldn't go spend the night at Billy's house. It's just because he said so. There is no higher authority for him to appeal to because there is none. He's it. And when that finally and clearly sinks in for Job, his response is to God, you win. You win. In chapter 42, you get all the way to the end of the book, and Job replies to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. God, I know that, that you know everything, that you can do everything, and I know that all of this is within your plan. Nothing can stop your plan. Nothing can thwart your plan. And so, God, you asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. To hear what Job's saying. He's saying that, that not only does God not owe him an explanation, but that what God is up to in this world and even what God is doing in his life is beyond his ability to fully comprehend. And that when he has tried to, to fit God into his neat and tidy categories of goodness and suffering and justice, that his comprehension of God falls inevitably and woefully short of the glory and the majesty of God. And it's only then that Job can move past his grief 
It's only then. It's only then. Look at verse 4. God, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. Verse 5, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The Hebrew word here that's translated repent in most of our English translations actually more typically carries the sense of to forget something, to move past it, to put it behind you. In other words, a better translation is to repent of dust and ashes. Job isn't going back to his dust and ashes. He's been there this whole time. No, finally, Job is moving on past his grief. Uh, we have a four-year-old, Eleanor. She's a handful. And uh, several months ago, she d- took it upon herself to begin um, evaluating all of us in the family. <laughs> Free of charge. You know, didn't, didn't ask if we wanted it, just started letting us know, um, you know, what kind of job we're doing. Her brothers, her mom, and me. And, uh, and she's a very articulate little four-year-old. But in this case, she decided there was more power in a gesture. Not that gesture. <laughs> and, uh, and so what she would do is she would just look at you and she would just either give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. <laughs> it's my little empress in the making. Live, die. <laughs> and so one night we're sitting around, uh, we're in the kitchen, we're having dinner, and it's this round table. And we're sitting kind of in order, and so she's here, and then brother, 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 mom, dad. And without saying a word, no introduction, she just begins. And she looks at the first brother and she goes, you. (laughs) Next brother, you. And we're kind of all watching to see what happens next, you know. You. Mom, you. Dad, you. Not going to lie, it stung a little. (laughs) But I can tell you from first-hand experience, there's no quicker way to get a thumbs-down rating for my daughter than telling her to eat her broccoli. (laughs) Or to brush her teeth. Or to go to bed when she doesn't want to. And what she's telling me when she gives me a thumbs-down is that she does not agree with me. I've got it wrong, right? Dad, you're wrong. I shouldn't have to eat my broccoli. I shouldn't have to brush my teeth. I shouldn't have to go to bed right now. I don't want to. Dad, you're wrong. Now, what she doesn't understand in her little four-year-old brain is that I am so old. I have been around for so long. I'm more than 10 times her age. And as such, I possess wisdom and insight that she does not yet have. And while I could... Theoretically, explain dental hygiene to her. Or, or I could try to explain to her the benefits of healthy eating and a balanced diet. And I could try to explain to her the, the science behind getting sufficient sleep for a four-year-old. I could try to do all that. She wouldn't understand any of it. Would not comprehend. And so what she's left with is because I said so. Which means that the most important truth for her to understand, 
the only truth that really matters in her life. It's not dental hygiene. It's not healthy eating. It's not the science behind sufficient sleep. The only truth that matters in her life that she needs to know is that I love her. It's easy to get stuck on the ash heap, isn't it? It's easy to get stuck in the ashes with our heads shaved and our robes torn. It's easy to live in our sorrow instead of living through our sorrow. And it's hard to just get up because we we don't know that God loves us and we think he got it wrong. See, some of you this morning, you, you want to believe that God is good, but you don't. And you want to believe that God loves you, but you can't see it. But the truth is, you can be sure of God's love. You can know that God loves you because of the one moment in all of human history when God's unthwartable plan, the plan that could not be defeated, looked like it had failed. You, you, you can be certain that God loves you because of the one time in all of the history of the universe it looked like God had lost and Satan had won. When Jesus hung on a cross, you know, this Jesus who, who was, was innocent beyond the innocence of Job, truly innocent, and yet like Job had his own accusers, and he was sentenced to death, and as he hung on a cross, dying, people walked by and, and they thought, this man is cursed. Clearly God hates this guy, Jesus. God has turned his back against this man. Because how else do you explain the fact that he's hanging on a cross? He's dying right now like a common criminal, like a petty thief. Clearly God has turned his back on this man. And you know what? In that moment, they were right. Because for that moment, God truly had turned his back on his only son so that he could turn his face toward you. You've got pain that you don't know how you can live with. You've you've got disappointment that you don't know how to understand. And you feel like God is against you, but the reality is that God turned against his own son so that you would never know what that's really like. The reality is that Jesus was cursed. He became sin for us. He was cursed, hanging on a cross, so that you and I would never be cursed. He took your punishment so that you could have his life. And if you want to judge God's, if you want to judge God's character, his goodness, his depth of love for you, that's the only moment that counts. Jesus died and he rose again so that you can, I could have real life with God. Real life. Not the kind of life that this world worships or this kind of, that the social media idolizes. Not the life where if you're not winning, you're losing. If you're not perfect, you're nothing. No, real life. Life that cannot be crushed by the brokenness of this world, life that is is full of peace and joy that will literally outlive this world, that's the life that God wants you to have. That's the life that Jesus offers to you if you'll just give your life to Jesus. 
And if you've never given your life to Jesus, I've got to ask, because this may be the last opportunity I have with you, to ask what's holding you back? What's keeping you from giving your whole life to Jesus? You know, maybe you've been willing to give up parts, <laughs> but there's these parts of your life that you feel yourself holding onto. What's keeping you from giving them to him? Maybe you're afraid. Because I get it. It's a scary thing to put your whole life into the hands of God because you don't know what he's going to do. You don't know what he's going to ask of you. He might ask you to go to New Jersey, right? I get it. You don't know. It's a scary thing in one sense. From a human perspective, there is nothing safe about being in God's will. But he's good. He's good. And maybe the, maybe the pain has just gotten to the point that you don't know how you could ever really trust him again. But what I want you to see is that Jesus is the undeniable and irrefutable proof that God loves you. More than you know. No one loves you like he does. You can give your life to Jesus for the very simple reason he already gave his life for you. Uh, James and Brian and Eric, the band, are going to come back up. And as they do, I just want to um, close and say thank you. Um, thank you for allowing me the privilege for these past few years to um, serve along with and serve you all. And, uh, you know, our relationship with Grace goes back to uh, 2006. And looking out, I, you know, so many familiar faces, so many of you who have... Um, encouraged us and loved on us and cared for us and supported us and laughed and cried with us. And for all of you who have served in the children's ministry and told my kids about Jesus, I am forever grateful. And you've been like family for us. And uh, so if I may, I just want to um, leave you with a, a word of blessing just to say, uh, may the God of peace and joy bless you and keep you and lead you into all paths of righteousness for the glory of the one who died for us until he comes again. Amen. God bless.